Welcome to the Arrangers Podcast. I'm Aaron Huddenstrom. And I'm Drew Zaremba. The Arrangers Podcast is a show dedicated to insightful discussion about the art, craft, and business of music arranging and composition. Be sure to subscribe through iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. You can email us your questions at thearrangerspodcast at gmail.com. Find us on Facebook. And on Twitter at thearrangerspod. Thanks for tuning in. All right. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Arrangers Podcast. Thanks, as always, for listening. Uh, We're going to answer a couple of questions from the community today and do our second Q&A session here. We have a couple of folks that have sent some great questions in. We really appreciate that. And uh, if you have any more questions or topics, you can always send us an email. Yep, uh, at the arrangers podcast at gmail.com. We hope you're reaching out like these good folks have, and we're going to get right into it. This first question is from Thomas Andrew, which is almost my first name and middle name, so that's really funny. Um, <laughs> he writes in asking, uh, how do you handle the melody when it gets too low for harmonizing a trumpet section during a shout chorus? And he, he goes on saying, if the melody note is F concert uh, above middle C, first bass on the treble clef staff, um, what, what do you do? He says, uh, do you put the trumpets in unison? Do you let the saxes and bones handle it? Um, and uh, so that, that great question, Thomas. Thank you. And uh, this really gets into how to write shout choruses for the big band. It, it, it does, and I think um, the first thing to note is that if you're talking about a shout chorus, we're, we're kind of implying that this is going to be loud and big, and the full ensemble is going to be involved. And usually with that, the note that you're suggesting would be way too low to really be a true shout chorus. Yes. So maybe what you're asking is um, maybe like a unison ensemble or a 2D ensemble passage where... It's um, maybe a soft shout, right? Uh, in which case, I think that melody note might work, although it's still pretty low for trumpets. But um, I think what you're asking is, you know, you're starting to get into this territory where if you start harmonizing all of the instruments on their own notes, you start to get into the mud territory of the bass clef. Yes, and that's not good. So I, I see uh, I see your your question and the problem that it presents. Right. So um, the first get, getting back to if it is a shout chorus, a real shout chorus, then that note is simply too low. Um, the The shout chorus needs to live in a range where the lead trumpet is going to sing over the band, and for me, that's definitely at least an octave and a third above middle C and then above that basically. And so when you're, when you're in that range, the trumpet will, will work. (laughs) It'll really, it'll start to sing over the band and you can really lead the ensemble like it's designed to do. And you can get into, you know, shell voicings, uh, closed position voicings, triads, all these kind of things. So down there in the depths, you can have the trumpets play, but you're not. It's going to be a very blended sound. Personally, for me, I love to write unison trumpets down there, or maybe two-part trumpets, having the first and second play 
uh, together in the third and fourth play together. But almost always down there, they're going to be doubled by the lead alto or the lead trombone or both. And so they really, down there, it's it's folly to harmonize them into four-part harmonies unless you're going for some sort of very specific dark, muddy sound for that context. It, it, they're going to blend into the stronger instruments because they're in such a weak tessitura. The question that you present is something that can be handled in a number of different ways. I, I would say I'm, I'm with Drew in the sense that my first instinct would be to, to put those trumpets on unison or two voice harmonies, because that's about all the leeway you have down in that register. It's just, it gets into a register that's just very um, quiet. Uh, it's kind of like writing flute in the low register. It's not going to speak if there's a lot of other stuff going on. So unison would help to kind of uh, help it speak. And I'm curious, Drew, do you ever, if you're doing two voice harmonies in the trumpet section, do you ever organize it into one and three playing together and two and four playing together? Definitely. It depends. I mean, that's, uh, it, it doesn't matter too, too much, but I like to think about where they're sitting. And so, um, yeah, two and four would be nice or every big band set up a little differently. So that's the kind of the problem. Sure. But, you know, yeah. if you want alternating people so they can tune to the person next to them, or if you want them playing the exact same thing together so they can tune to each other. Um, it, it's a different, uh, it's a different approach. And, but usually I just have one and two play the same thing together and three and four play the same thing together. Cause that's in my big band, they sit next to each other like that. The other thing is, the other thing you can do is have the lead lay out. I, any chance you have the lead, you, you, you can give the lead trumpet a chance to lay out, the better. So if, the, if it's down there and it's unison, I'll have second and third maybe play unison and a, the fourth part uh, doubling a trombone two or alto two or something, or have all three of them in unison like that. So, Or even just two trumpets in unison giving the lead a chance to uh, rest his chops so he or she can uh, be fresh for the higher shout chorus is and the higher notes is so critical. Yeah, and you know, that note, concert F on the first space of the treble clef is the concert F on the third space of above the staff on the bass clef. That's very much in the trombone's range. and Power range, it's, uh, yeah. It's very comfortable for the sax uh, pretty much all the saxophones. So so you could do anything from doubling trumpets with lead alto and lead bone so that you kind of have the three sections playing that in unison and then harmonizing the bone section and the sax section underneath that lead voice. And so that way you kind of, you maybe have a three or four or five note harmony that uh, <laughs> is spread amongst the inner parts of those lower sections and the trumpets are kind of just doing a unison or or half of them sitting out or something like that. I think the ultimate takeaway here is that there's no one answer really because it all comes down to the the various colors of the instruments that you're looking for. For example, do you want your lead alto to be playing soprano or alto? Um, that changes the color. Even on a unison like that, it, it slightly changes the sound of it. Mm -hmm. Do you want your trumpets playing in a mute? Maybe you have two in a mute, two out. Two on a harmon, two on a 
cup or maybe you have flugel, you know, there's so many different options. Maybe you have some of your saxophone section playing clarinets down in that register because it's a nice dark sound. Maybe you have your bones in mutes. So mm-hmm. there's there's just a lot to consider here. And I think you're right on, Thomas, when you say, I know context matters because that's exactly that's exactly it. So <laughs> it's true. Yeah. Yeah. Long story short, though, uh, for if it is a true shout chorus, maybe that's just a moment where the whole band is subito piano and then it's going to ascend to a higher note. But for a shout chorus, that's it. It's not really going to work um, if the trumpets are down there. Um, you know, the bones can be fortissimo, but the trumpets for it cannot be. They will, they'll just get absorbed into the, the rest of the ensemble. So um, right. modulating or uh, moving your mel- or rewriting your melody is, uh, is going to be uh, important. Um, for getting a true shout chorus, if that's the way we're interpreting your question. Sorry if we got part of it wrong. <laughs> and you know what? Um, if you actually have an example that you could, wanted to send us, we'd be happy to, to uh, look that over too. It might be interesting for us to just see what the context you're talking about is. Absolutely. Yep. We will take all of that and maybe even talk about it on the show. Um, All right. Thanks, Thomas. Hopefully that helps. It is definitely a very, very critical consideration. So thank you for your your good question. Mm -hmm. We're going to move on to uh, a couple questions from Luke Thering. I think that's how you pronounce it. Sorry if it's wrong, but uh, Luke writes in, I believe that you mentioned you're both affiliated with ASCAP. And yes, yes, we we are. are. We're both members of ASCAP. I wonder if you can elaborate a bit on what role ASCAP plays in your careers as it pertains to your recordings and or compositions. How do you make use of that affiliation? So this is a music business question. Mm -hmm. We we very much appreciate that since part of our mission is to help equip aspiring writers for their career in the music business. Just to kind of give you an overview, for those of you who are unfamiliar with um, the ASCAP organization, it stands for the American Society of Composers, Authors, and Publishers. And there are some parallel organizations that do similar things, BMI, and I think there might be a couple others, but those are the CSAC, two big ones. few others. But we're both members of ASCAP, and Drew, what, what role does this play in your music career? I'm, I'm an ASCAP member, and... I actually need to do a much better job of registering my pieces with ASCAP. Um, but uh, when I released my first album a year ago, I registered all my pieces with ASCAP. So all my original pieces, that is. So that way, anytime it was played on the radio or got some airplay somewhere, then I would uh, get some performance royalties for it. And I should really do that soon, um, which is take the rest of my original compositions that I've created and register them so that way anytime they're performed by a high school ensemble, college ensemble, or any other ensemble, there's a small check that will be sent my way by the uh, concert hall who pays a blanket ASCAP fee, and then I'll get a, a small slice of that, probably 10 cents or something, maybe a little more. <laughs> but... um. Huh. But that's, but that's what it's done for me, and there's a couple of other pieces that I've worked on with some singer-songwriters who have registered with ASCAP. So Tatiana Mayfield, on her album, I got 
some publishing credit for one of her pieces. So if that piece does well, then I should see a little check come in my way, which is uh, exciting and hopefully will work out. And finally, I've also won the ASCAP Young Composers Award twice. Um, once this year and once in 2012. And that's the same year Aaron won it too. So that was fun because we won it together with our other friend, uh, Addison Fry. We were all from UNT at the same time. So that's the role that ASCAP has played in, in my career. Yeah, thanks for, for sharing that. Yeah, I think these royalty companies are really important in the support of musicians such as ourselves, composers who write original music. For me, I got acquainted with ASCAP when I was an undergraduate getting a classical composition degree at University of Wisconsin-Eau Claire. My, um, com- my composition teacher told me about it. I had no idea what it was. I'd never heard of it. And he said that basically you pay a one-time fee and then you're a member for life. So I was like, okay, well, that's easy. I can do that. So you register as a composer and then you upload all of your works the names of them and the credits and everything into their database and then anytime somebody notifies them that there was a performance of it on a show radio live concert at a college or university or a public venue then you get uh, some royalties you get some money and they send you a check so for me i started doing that and i had uploaded some of my pieces up there and over the years i've done some, you know, original big band and small group jazz works that I've uploaded up there. And I, I really haven't seen too many royalties from it. But uh, as I understand it, colleges and universities are required to basically submit all of the programs of music that are performed at their college so that these royalty companies can can have a report of, of your pieces getting played. So theoretically, if I wrote a piece and uh, college or, or university jazz band were to perform it on one of their concerts, I would get a little chunk of change. I don't know how much it is, but for that performance. And then, you know, let's say 10 different schools did your piece, then you would get 10 times that. So so yeah, so I have my pieces registered on, on ASCAP, but uh, like I said, it's not like a substantial part of my income at this point. And uh, I mean, yeah, hopefully, me neither. At some point it, <laughs> hopefully at some point it could be, I, I think that would be a great goal. Once you have a large body of work out there, and if you become particularly well-known as a composer, as a arranger, someone like Alan Baylock, Rich DeRosa, Gordon Goodwin, I'm sure these people have substantial checks uh, right potentially in you know for someone like gordon it's definitely in the thousands i would imagine and um uh for uh for less famous people probably in the hundreds but usually those checks from my understanding come once a quarter or so so they can be a, a nice addition um to your income but for me it's not that and uh uh sounds like for you neither yet aaron but but that's 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 accurate yeah well and there's a couple <laughs> other yeah there's a couple other aspects to it that i think are, are worth noting one being that you can register as a performer and you can register as a publishing company or a publisher and i've registered both so i've i paid the fee twice to become a publisher and a performer on their database because if I'm self-publishing and selling charts through my own website, which I do Same as PDFs, here. 
I get 100% of the royalties. Whereas right. if you only register for a, a performer, then you only get 50% of the royalties. Mm-hmm. So, so that's another aspect to know about. And basically, I see it as if one of my pieces were to ever take off and become played by a lot of different groups, maybe it's a really catchy or really easily playable by high school groups. And for whatever reason, it starts to get played a lot. I wouldn't want to get caught not getting the royalties. I wouldn't want to get caught without this great service to kind of make use of that. And I think these companies are particularly crucial for those who do any kind of television, film, or video game works where they they um, register all of their little uh, cues onto the system. Mm-hmm. And anytime it's played on a te- television show or, or a public uh, venue, then the royalties go to those composers. And I think very successful composers in that realm could collect quite a few royalties from ASCAP or BMI. Right. Oh, it's, a, it's a big thing to get into, but the more works that you have, the more likely that something will take off and you'll have more lines in the ocean. And so one of them will catch a fish. And, uh, and so that's, that's the thing to do there, and, which I need to do. So this is a great <laughs> wake-up call for me. <laughs> Hey, me too. Why don't we? I'll register my things. Well, you know, just on a final thought for this, um, if you go to the ASCAP website, there's actually a lot of facets to this organization that you can uh, that you can benefit from. Not just the money from royalties, which is kind of their primary purpose, but if you just go on their website, you have a lot of different resources that they have provided for you and. Not only that, but you can actually contact them and you can you can actually give them a phone call or send them an email. And you can actually talk to someone in person who knows much more about this than, than I do. Um, mm-hmm. You can ask questions. You can ask these questions to them in, you know, yourself. You can say, how does this work? What do I need to do? And uh, so... So I, I would say for us, we're probably not the uh, the best resources for the nitty-gritty stuff. That's kind of an overview, but but you can find out a lot just going to their website and getting in touch with them. So don't be shy because because the music business is all about people. So, you know, people are behind all these things. You can, uh, you can find out um, person to person. We're learning about that too. And so thanks for, thanks for asking your question and we'll be diving deep. We have a surface knowledge and it makes us want to go deeper so thank you we got one more question from luke here and he's talking about saxophone voicings and so um we both know a couple things about that being saxophone players so uh he says i'm getting i'm diving into jazz composition and arranging in the digital age by sussman and abene great book great writers what's common practice for dealing with doublings for example in a four note Split between five saxes. It's common to double the lead down an octave in the berry, uh, is what he says. Would it be ill-advised to have the fifth player lay out until it requires a fifth voice? It's a subjective matter, and it depends on the sound you want, but what is common practice or our perspective? Great question. Wow. Yeah, great question. What What do you say, Aaron? Well, um, I think... What you're talking about is you found a chord you like and you want to distribute it in the saxes, but you don't need that fifth note. You like the chord as a four-note chord, and what do you do with that extra note? So, or what do you do with the extra the extra saxophone? 
Right. So there's a there's a few kind of common ways that people have um, traditionally approached this. One would be the stock uh, the stock technique of what we call shell voicings, which is to basically put those four notes and then double the uh, bury down an octave with the lead alto. So basically, you're going to have the four notes and then the the lead alto doubled down an octave, um, and that's a traditional swing big band sound. Uh, you, you know, it's not going to be yes, it's not going to be appropriate in every situation. But if you're wanting that count bassy or earlier kind of sound, I think that's a, a good way of, of going about it. It does sound fairly old school and traditional. It sounds very much like dance band era jazz or um, mm-hmm. swing era jazz. And I think it's very useful to, to know that. The second thing you can do from there is you can do a drop two voicing, which is where you take the second voice from the top, the second voice, if it's a sax section, you take alto two, their note in that five note voicing, and you just put it down an octave. And then you distribute them accordingly. So what you end up having there is you have a spread of about a tenth or a ninth between your lead alto and your Barry sax. And to me, that gets a little bit more of an open sound. Definitely. You hear some of that in more of the, the swing era music that is a little bit beyond the kind of the dance band era, but some of like the later bassy stuff, Sammy Nestico's music. And uh, it gets a little bit more of a rich open sound with a little more sophistication. And then... Uh, Finally, you can have a five-note voicing where each sax has their own note, and that allows you to get maximum color, but you may not want that. Right. And then to get to what you're asking about, uh, Luke, you don't have to have all five people play. You can have the four-voice voicing and and leave it at that. Right. And you can have the two altos, two tenors playing the voicing. You could have an alto, two tenors, and a berry, which would get a beefier sound. You could have... uh, Two altos, tenor, and a berry. That'd be an interesting sound. Each saxophone, even though they're similar in color, they each have their own distinct tessitura. And so, you know, Aaron and I were talking about this before answering this question. You take a a tune like Four Brothers by the Woody Herman Band. You had, that saxophone section was three tenors and a berry. And the tenor in its high register gets a real huge and bright sound that if the alto played the same notes, it would actually sound a little darker. But because the tenor's in a higher tessitura, it'll be a bigger sound. And so because you have those big horns playing in their high range, it's going to be a, a huge sound. And so that's the approach that they took. But yeah, you don't need to have five players playing at all the same time. At the same time, if you want them all to be playing, if it's going to go, if it if it's a section that goes in between four notes and five note voicings, you don't want, and it's a, if it's in the context of a line, you don't want one guy sitting out except for like three notes within a <laughs> ten note passage. So one of the best one of the best things to do is that you can have the berry double the tenor two, and then it'll split to five notes when it's time, and then merge back. Or you can have alto two double the lead alto, and then it splits into five notes when necessary. Doubling the melody is almost never a bad idea. And then in the lower instruments, you might worry, oh, if the berry is doubling the second tenor, then it'll be really loud. 
actually that's not the case because when you double a note it doesn't become twice as loud that's just a a, a property of physics that uh, we actually talked about on the show with our first guest david berger if you want the sound of double one trumpet you need all four trumpets playing so yeah you can have the very double the tenor two but often yeah if it's just a four note chord in a more early style, it was a very blended sound. Everyone was playing a lot together, or the whole sections were playing together. But Gil Evans was really a writer who we both admire, who rarely doubled things. I shouldn't say rarely, but he made it a point to only use one instrument at a time, unless it was this very particular color he was going for, using uh, small groups to really get a individual sound and let the individual instruments speak. So if you have a four-note voicing, maybe even consider not putting it all in the saxophones. What if you had alto, bone, guitar, Barry? That'd be something like Gil would do. He'd put the guitar in the in a middle voice somewhere and treat it like a combo. Or That's just one example, but you have a lot of possibilities there if you just have four notes. Sometimes doubling will, doubling will make it feel bigger and more blended. But maybe that's not what you want in your context. Just like uh, Thomas's question, you you also included this thing in your question. It's ultimately a subjective matter. It depends on the sound you want. I think that's exactly right. And if you want to know the common practices, those are kind of the, the ways that people have traditionally gone about it. So that those are some of the ways that we think about this. And uh, one thing that you can certainly do is write it out in a few different ways and then bring it into a jazz band if you're uh, if you have a jazz band you can have them read it four different ways and then you can record it and go back and listen and take note of how how the different ones sound how they sound different or similar and the best way is to hear it in person and to hear them play it so that you can kind of gauge what the difference is. Definitely. I literally did this yesterday. Uh, I brought it into a, a lab band at UNT, something that I hadn't really experimented with before, and had them play it and see if it would work. And some things did and some things didn't, and so I changed the things I didn't like, and, and uh, it's still the best way to learn, bringing it in. Just to throw this in there, if it's a small group kind of thing, one of my favorite things with a four-note voicing is to double the melody. So trumpet and alto on the top, and then tenor, bone, berry, or tenor, uh, or bone, tenor, berry, or alto, tenor, bone, or something. Some combination of three people on the bottom three notes. But having the fortifying the melody with the trumpet and the alto will help it really sing over the ensemble. And it makes for a nice blended sound. And if, if you want a further blended sound, you can have four saxes, alto, tenor, berry, doubled with four brass, two trumpets, and two bones. That's like a mini big band feel. Because when you have the full big band, there's a lot of doubling going on. You know, your second or third trumpet is often being doubled in your alto, lead alto, and the rest of your the saxophones are often doubled by trombones. You have a lot of possibilities there. It depends on how big you want the sound. It depends on how blended you want the sound. If you only want those four notes sounding, don't drop the berry down an octave uh, from the lead alto because that'll put it in a really different context from just four note voicing. It becomes a five note voicing. There's just, there's four notes, but there's five voices. It becomes so much more of a section sound that is tied to a particular era, like those block shell voicings that Aaron was talking about. Whereas if you just have a four note voicing, it can actually feel more open sometimes, depending on what the four notes are. 
and particularly if they're not stacked in thirds. That can actually be more effective than dropping the octave. And ultimately, this is art. You know, the artistic aspects of arranging are when you have to make these choices based on aesthetics and not just techniques and, and stock approaches. So again, this is something that you'll just want to experiment with as much as you can. And you'll find that there's a lot of really uh, interesting things you can do with this. Yes. Thanks for sending in this question. And, and there's a lot deeper we could go, but we only have so much time and we uh, appreciate all of you tuning in and listening to this episode. Thanks for your questions, Luke and Thomas. Uh, for the rest of y'all out there, feel free to send in your questions. We'll do our best. And uh, as always, thanks for listening. Good talking to you, Aaron. Yeah, you too, Drew. And uh, feel free to send your questions. We, we love them. We, we want to answer more questions and, and get into these good discussions. It helps us learn and helps you learn. So keep them coming and uh, we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Be sure to subscribe through iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Email us your questions at thearrangerspodcast at gmail.com. Be sure to find us on Facebook and on Twitter with the handle at thearrangerspod. Happy writing and hope to see you next time. Thank you.